Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. It's good to see everyone. Please feel free to have a seat. Uh, We are largely in Romans chapter 10 this week. Uh, We've been going through Romans at a chapter by chapter level, kind of an overview of the book in the sense of like how you hopefully would be reading it in your own time as you engage it. Uh, We want to be sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees, as it were, to see the kind of overarching themes that Paul has here and how he knits everything together. Uh, like we mentioned last week, there's many different ways to look at Scripture and to engage it. I, I have friends in town this week that were here in first service. Their church went through Romans, and it took them seven years. That is the exact opposite level of what we are doing in this version. This version, we are moving through it rather quickly. And both of those have their, their benefits, different things that you get to see. And we want to model all of that as we preach and as we study. Uh, we want to, to see both systematic theology and how we knit it together and also biblical theology, see the broad picture of what God is doing across all of Scripture. In this series, we're obviously focusing a little bit more on that broader picture, how this all goes together. You know, in Romans 1 through 8... Uh, Paul was extolling the beauties of God's plan to save us through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Uh, He started with general revelation, special revelation. He talked about God's steadfast love, his one and constant plan that he has had throughout all of time that we might come to know him. And we saw the problem that we're not righteous and we need to be righteous before a righteous God. And yet he chose by grace and mercy to come, to be the very righteousness that we need, to die our death on a cross that we might become righteous before God and walk in right relationship with him again. It's been a beautiful picture to walk through with Paul. And then we saw last week in Romans chapter nine that he kind of made a turn. He moved out of that glorious picture that he was painting for the first eight chapters and he started to let us into his heart and into some anguish a struggle that he was having and a struggle that, if we were honest, we too should wonder as we're reading along. For Paul, it was that his fellow Jewish countrymen are not coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that in particular is a concern for him because these are the people that God gave the promises to. These are the people that God gave his law to. These are the people that he pulled aside, especially out of Egypt and saved them, brought them up. If God doesn't bring them to faith, is God failing? And if God is failing, is maybe we have a problem. Is he going to be secure and help us in our faith? Paul shares that difficulty, and his first answer to the question, to that issue of what is God doing with Israel, is that Paul starts by looking at the very character and nature of God. And I hope we would all say, that's a great place to start. (laughs) I want to understand God a little better. I want to understand what he's doing here. And what Paul says is a difficult idea for many people. He reminded us that God has always elected some people and not elected others. He says that's true when we look at individuals through Israel's history, and it would seem to hold true even when we look at our own history, people that we know, people that are friends and family. Now, this is Paul's first argument, that God elects some and doesn't elect others. In fact, Paul goes even further. He says that in electing some, God shows mercy and grace on them, and in not electing others, he hardens their heart. Now, Paul, along with the rest of Scripture, holds a marvelous tension. He says this, he says that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he will harden. And human beings, because of their sin, are responsible for their actions. And these are all true. 
Paul, along with the rest of the prophets, along with the apostles, all those looking to understand what God is doing. Wants to, we want to dive deeply into that nature of God and to know who he is. Paul wants to give God his prerogative as creator and acknowledge that he alone gets to make these kind of choices. And this is both a frightening and a beautiful reality. We talked about last week how it's frightening in the sense that that means there are people who will not know the loving embrace of God. Uh, We always got to remember that flip side of the coin to to remember that these are real people, real fates, and that it, it should make us sad to think about anyone who doesn't know God, who doesn't lovingly walk in relationship with him. And yet amidst that difficulty, we also don't want to miss the beauty because there's great beauty in that reality for me and you. This means that our God is entirely sovereign. He can do everything and anything that he wills. And that means for people like you and me, who to the best that we have tried to put our faith in God, to acknowledge that we need what Jesus has to offer, we can rest assured that our God will carry us to the end. That he is the one who will do all the work that is necessary. He will move our hearts and our minds in the ways that would help us be more conformed to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Those, Those are all difficult ideas, and Paul doesn't even stop there. He doesn't leave us with just a rote declaration that God elects and then hopes we kind of figure it out. In fact, he tries to delve a little bit into maybe the purposes in the mind of God and what's going on last week when he reminds us of this. He says that maybe, maybe God does that, allows some to be elected and others not to be elected for you and me, people like us. That's what he says. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for God? God's patience in allowing some to be elected and some not, when I even look at my own family's history, means that by allowing those who did not love him to be here to continue on, meant I became into being. And that in that joy and that grace, God then allowed me to love him. That, that is a plan that's beyond my comprehension. And it's woven together with mystery and beauty. And I want to be thankful for what God has done in that. We want to hold that tension that we're seeing in Scripture faithfully because we see it in so many other places. We even see it when Jesus talks. Look what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. He says, at that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then just three verses later, he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He holds the offer out to all. He comes them to, calls them to come to him. And yet he acknowledges and thanks the Father that he hides it from some and gives it to the ones he wants to give it to. Or look what Jesus says in John 6.35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then two verses later, he says, all that the Father gives me will come. He says, all, you should all come to me and knowingly acknowledges that the Father will give him some and they will come to him. Or look at Paul, Paul preaching to the Jewish people in Antioch in Acts. He says this, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, uh, by ev- uh, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And then, right afterwards, the narrator Luke writes this. He says, "And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed." 
right? Paul's offering it to everyone, and then he says, and the ones that were appointed believed. There's a tension here of Christ preached and some that are appointed receive eternal life. This tension that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, God will harden whom he will harden, and human beings, because of our sin, are responsible for our actions. It's this tension we have to walk in. And today, Paul starts to, to, to come out of his ponderings on election. Uh, he returns here to one of his favorite devices. He comes back to this idea of this sort of imaginary argument that he's having with someone and what they might push back and say to him in this moment. In fact, that's how we know that the, the actual section here starts in the very end of chapter 9, not at 10.1, because he uses this same device, and the argument continues on all the way through the chapter 10. Yeah, his, his imagination here, though, and his argument's a little different than we've seen before. I mean, look how he starts here in 9.30 through 33. He says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You might have missed it there. There was a question in there that gets an implied answer. If we look at just this first piece where he says that, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness that did not succeed in reaching the law. The implied answer is yes, that's what we would say. Yes, that's what's happened. That's not the way Paul's usually argued in these kind of conversations. He's usually using it to just further along a normal observation that we should have. But here he knows this isn't what everyone was expecting. It wasn't what he was expecting. In fact, that's why he jumps immediately into that why. He, he, wants, he wants to explain what is happening here. You know, Paul's main goal of the first part of chapter 9 was to look at the character of God and his prerogative in election. But here he pivots to sort of the last part of that tension, that last part of the tension that's our responsibility, that we still need to believe and have faith. There's, there's a real choice that people are making, and he's saying that Israel didn't make that choice. You know, in fact, we're going to notice throughout this section that the words that we've seen kind of in Romans 1 through 8 are coming back. We're going to see words like righteousness, faith, uh, belief. Those are going to become key themes again. And Paul's pivoting back to the idea of how do we come to that faith? We believe. We have to put our faith in Christ. You know, there's a sense of much about what Paul is saying here is for any unbeliever in general. But he's obviously specifically thinking about the Jewish people that he's familiar with and likely he's writing to as well. <clears throat> you know, Paul says the real problem again, like much of Romans 2 through 7, is the question of faith versus works. You know, the Gentiles found righteousness because of faith. Israel failed because they were pursuing righteousness through works of the law. And we bump into again this idea of Israel and how should they relate to the law? And even how should you and I relate to the law? We'll talk about that in a little bit. You know, Paul stays consistent with what we've seen throughout all of Romans. He says that the law could never save. We talked about that in Romans 3. And he says that the law, when we engage it in our sinful flesh, only corrupts us that we might do more wrong. That's the things he talked about in Romans 7. You know, the phrase here in 931 that is literally translated law of righteousness is really helpfully explained here in our English versions as the law that leads to righteousness. Because that's its meaning. It's not the law of righteousness, meaning that righteousness could truly be attained through it. 
It showed us the beauty of our God, his righteousness. What would it look like to walk in perfection, but it could not get it there. You know, Paul has never said throughout all of Romans that the law could bring you righteousness. That is the whole part of the first portion of this book, of this letter. Yet the law revealed us God, and it should lead us to one conclusion always, the need for a savior, the need for this Messiah that was always prophesied, that God himself would step in and solve our problem because the law couldn't do it. You know, Paul's first statement uh, in this section of why the Jewish people are not coming to righteousness is because, they, uh, because of how they pursued righteousness. Uh, they pursued it and tried to find it through works, through working their way there. But the second reason he says that they're not finding righteousness is because of this stumbling block. It's this imagery that because of Jesus, they're literally falling over and not able to continue down that path. You know, for the Jewish people, it was really kind of two things. One, it was this pushback against their own works. And to realize that and admit that what they really needed was God to come, God in the flesh, to live the righteous life they thought they were doing, that they needed to put belief in this person, that they might find the righteousness of God. That was too much for so many of them. And then add to that, he didn't look at all like the Messiah they were expecting. He didn't come to destroy the nations, to rule and bring all of Israel up mighty again. They looked at Jesus and thought, this isn't the way this is supposed to happen. There was a humility that was lacking and even a faith that they could not put in Jesus Christ. You know, in this first section, Paul is confident after just talking about election that God is both holy and good and that he elects some and doesn't elect others and that we need to turn and have an opportunity to accept Christ through faith. He, he, he expects that that's going to be normative, that people have an option to choose faith or choose works and God elects. He, he just walks right into that belief. And that's one of my, my questions for us this morning. Is that where you start even in that tension with election? Do you trust that God is going to bring a real option to people, a real option for them to believe or not believe, to put their trust in their own works or to put their trust in him? That's where Paul starts. And second, I don't know about you, but I, I, find, a, I find a pattern in me, and I think Paul knows this pattern, Whenever I find out that there's another reason that something has happened, especially if it's like a bad reason, then my first assumption is that I, it's not my problem. I got no responsibilities here. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've been in arguments with people. And when I realize they've now had a bad attitude or they've now said something not quite right, it doesn't matter if I'm 99% wrong. I now want to justify my entire attitude, my entire position because of the thing they did wrong. You guys might be way more holy than me, but I want to do that all the time. I think Paul senses that in us. He, he can sense that, that with election, the temptation might be to say, I don't have a responsibility here. And he's pivoting back and saying, no, there is responsibility. There's personal responsibility. And we're going to see even a responsibility of how we step into this, this project with God a little further on. You know, Paul continues on in Romans 10, 1 through 4, with his confidence that Israel as a whole has been ignorant of real righteousness. He starts this way. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, to, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for, ever, for uh, the, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And there's a rolling logic that goes through this entire section. Paul wants to see Israel saved because they have a zeal. They're passionate about God. Yet he says their zeal is not according to real knowledge because 
He's seeing them try to establish their own righteousness through works, not the righteousness of God. And he would also say that they have not submitted to God's righteousness because if they had, they would have come to the natural conclusion, which is Christ. That's his logic here. And verse four is one of the most succinct and beautiful statements Paul says in in almost all of his writings about who Christ is. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is what Paul is saying when he says that his uh, Jewish brothers and sisters are ignorant of the righteousness of God. He doesn't mean that they don't know that God is righteous, that he has good requirements of them. Rather, they're ignorant about how God brings about righteousness. You know, our righteousness only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, all the laws, all the prophets are all pointing forward. They're bringing us to this conclusion that there must be a Messiah and he must deal with all of this for us. He is the telos. That's the word for end here. And we still use that in English a lot, talking about the trajectory of the end of something that someone is writing. Jesus is the end goal towards which the law moves. And when Paul says that Jesus is the end of the law. He's, he's not talking about the end of the law as though it doesn't matter anymore. He just was talking about that as, with us in Romans 6 and Romans 7. The law does still show us the perfect righteousness of God, but rather it's the end of the law in these two senses. The, the, it means that the law of Moses is in some ways no longer authoritative over us, and that Christ is also the end as in a goal, the point of the law. We've been talking about that second one, uh, that, that, that the law is pointing to Jesus, so it has ended. We know what comes now there. You've read the end of the book. There's no more guessing what's going to happen. But this first one is worth looking at, and we'll have to dive into this more in depth another time. But, but the idea is that we need to look at how the law has changed its authority even over us. Because in Jesus, the law doesn't apply to us equally anymore. Take, for instance, the law of sacrifices. Right? We find in Hebrews 10, 12, there that Jesus is our once and for all sacrifices. That's why almost, I'm guessing, none of you have been a part of a sacrifice ritual. That would be so so foreign to the Jewish people of Paul's day. But here we're told that we don't need to do that anymore because that has been done and it's over with. One time in Jesus Christ. Yet, so often when Jesus would ask others, uh, what is the most important part of the law? They would answer back, love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. We're still bound to those two parts of the law. And that that makes sense in Jesus Christ. We're still bound in him to love the Lord. We're still bound to love our neighbors as we would love ourselves. It's always not clear cut when we begin to look at it. So we need to, to find in it the most important thing is that Jesus has solved that all for us. And as we look at the law then, how has Jesus fulfilled it? And where is it still right of us to love God through that? But that's a discussion for another sermon. You know, my guess is, this is where a lot of our friends and family are. Uh, people who are unbelievers that are in your life that you love and care for, they probably are here where they're ignorant of righteousness, ignorant of how righteousness would come about. And they're, they're working on some sort of project through their own strength and, and will, some other religion that's trying to get them to do enough to finally get themselves to heaven, to finally find that relationship with God. Or just finding their own pleasure, their own works of what they've decided is the end goal. You know, there seems to be a a grasp. We want them to see. We want them to see and grasp the beauty of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And we want to see them come, come to this understanding that it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace and mercy of God. 
But Paul's going to talk about that here in a minute. But first, he kind of goes to where Paul always goes in, in this, in this uh, way that he's writing and talking in Romans. He wants to show us that this has always been how it has been. He's going to go back and explain from Scripture how this has always been the process. So look what he says here in Romans 10, 5 through 13. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The challenge for Paul isn't usually to, to point to us to Scripture and show where it says that if you follow the law, you have to be judged by it. He's done that so often already in Romans. In fact, here he just is begging us to go back and look at that, and he just makes a declaration. Moses talks about this. If you want to follow the law, you're going to live under it, which means you'll be judged by it, which means you will be found guilty and wanting. You will never live up to it. The trouble is, how does he go back to the Old Testament and continually show us where the gospel's there? Uh, this fact that God's going to be the one to save. He's done it already a little bit when he's talked about Abraham and the faith that he had prior to circumcision. He's brought out some of the Psalms and David and how David's talking about who God is and what he is doing. And here you can see how Paul's concern is for his Jewish friends as he goes right back to Deuteronomy 30. He goes right back into the depths of the law where they're being given it. And he says, let me show you it right from here. And this is what he says. He's looking at Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. This is the section he gets it out of. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither it is beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. You can see in the midst of the law why, why Israel might say, well, I guess I, just, I have to do it. It's easy. It's near me. I just need to have this kind of ability and walk it out. Yet, if we look at what God says just prior to this in Deuteronomy 36, verse 6, here's what he says. He's been talking about how Israel's going to fall away. And he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and you may, that you may live. He's talking about this thing that God promises to do, that, that they weren't going to be able to follow the law. And yet God was going to give them a new heart. He's going to circumcise their heart is that language. He's going to make their hearts soft. He's going to help them believe. That's what Paul is pointing back to. He wants them to see that even back here, the law was always pointing forward, that Jesus is what was needed, that God was going to have to step in and do what he's told us he was always going to do, which was change our hearts, change our affections, that we might believe. You know, Paul pairs these phrases with Jesus to show how foolish it would be to think that we could have done this with Jesus, let alone the law. God had to bring the law down on Sinai to Moses and give it to him that the people might know it. And in the same way with Jesus, he said, could they go up the mountain and get Jesus? Could we have gone to heaven and pulled Jesus down that he might come serve us? Or even more so in his death, could we have gone to hell and raised him back to life that he might save us? Paul's saying that you could never have done that. It wouldn't have worked. We needed God to engage us. 
And this is the kind of story that would have been very familiar to a Roman audience who, who throughout all their religions had all these stories about the man who went out to Olympus to go find the gods and confront them in some way, maybe convince them to do something different or maybe even fight them to make them and compel them to do something. And again, Paul is speaking even to them to say, it can't happen. You're sinful. You can't do that. God had to reach out to us. God had to engage us. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying that uh, Paul's saying that we believe in God will save us, that the offer is real. The offer is real to Jews and Gentiles that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, he's quoting another Old Testament passage from Joel, from Joel 2.32, to show that this has always been the plan, that people would have to call on the name of the Lord in faith to find salvation. Now, at this point, I would hope that in some ways we might be thinking to ourselves and saying, okay, I'm getting it, Paul. We're going back around. I I need to have faith. I need to have faith. I need to believe in, in Jesus. Okay, I have done that. I am trusting in what Jesus has done for my salvation. I have put my life in his hands, but God, I have friends who still aren't there. I have a family member who's still not there. What do I do to help them? They don't see it still. And I think... I think this is the crux of this section this morning. If people must believe, then what are we, those who already believe, to do? And this is what he says. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news people to call upon God, they have to believe. For them to believe, they have to hear and know about the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done for us. And for them to hear that, someone has to preach, someone has to tell them. They have to talk about it, and we need to partner with one another that some are sending and some are talking. We all are doing these in different ways in different times of our life. This is a glorious process because this is God's plan for how we are invited to work alongside with him in this amazing plan to bring people to salvation. And before we look at that too in depth, I want to jump really fast to what comes right after it. Because Paul knows by by bringing up this idea of preaching, of sharing with one another about who Jesus is, he's going to create another problem for himself. The question is going to be, did anyone do this for Israel? And this is what he says. He says, but they, Israel, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul is bringing this up because he knows that it's going to be the question, did anyone preach it to Israel? And he starts here by summarizing his point, what needs to happen for Israel, what needs to happen to anyone. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so he says, but I ask, have they not heard? And he answers immediately, indeed they have. In fact, what he unpacks in these last couple verses is he goes back to both the law and the prophets to show that this is continually what was said was going to happen and it's what is going on in his day. 
And Paul actually, in, in fact, here sort of starts tipping his hat to where he's going to go into chapter 11, which is when he starts it out by saying, not all uh, have obeyed. He's going to say, but some have. In fact, he sees himself as kind of prime example number one of Jewish people that have been saved, the remnant that was always going to be there, that is continuing on and has continued to hold the promises of God. But we'll talk about that a little more next week. I want to come back and dwell in this section in our conclusion this morning. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When we think about belief, when we think about the reality that people need to hear the word of God, they need to hear the beauty of the story of Jesus, I'm guessing you're not sitting there and looking around this room and going, we're the A-team, we're the ones to send, let's go. I mean, too often I feel like those gangly kids in a Disney movie that, you know, at some point put on, I don't know whether it's their hockey jersey or their baseball jersey or their whatever, because the story's the same in all of them. And then they go out and they win against the team that they should have never won against. Now that's not what's going on here, but God in his infinite wisdom and grace and mercy, and I think with a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, looked upon his beloved sons and daughters and said, I want to use you. I want you to be a part of this process. I am bringing you in to what I am doing. That is amazing. Paul looks at this natural progression of what people need, and he stops and says, he needs us. They need us. She needs us. Whether it's your neighbor across the street, whether it's a family member two states away, or whether it's someone you've not ever heard the name of in a country you probably can't pronounce the name of, they need to hear about the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of his salvation through faith alone. They need to hear about Jesus. As Paul would say at the end here, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You and I all had that happen at some point in our life. We all had someone share with us the glory of Jesus Christ and it came awake in our hearts. And if you're here this morning and you haven't had that yet, I pray that that's what you're seeing in Romans, that God is awakening to you the beauty of what he has done for you in Jesus. We are the ones that God has asked to do that. We do it in response to the great commission of Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations we do it in response to 1 Peter 3.15 that tells us that we are required to be able to share with others the hope that we have in Jesus and what he's done for us. We do it as those who preach and we do that as those who send. There's a partnership at different times. You're doing that this morning as you have encouraged me and have me up here preaching and sharing the word of God from Romans and you do it when you go to coffee with a friend and you share about your life and the God that is meeting you daily. We are all a part of this in different ways at different times. You know, in the midst of Paul's discussion and concern that we see how God is faithful, even though many Jews have not come to faith, we don't want to miss this great responsibility that he's given us. And it is a joyful responsibility. You're not selling a product you don't love. You should love this greatly. This is your joy, your God, your good father who has loved you dearly. And it is a paradoxical logic of God that takes needy and broken people to go out to other needy and broken people that they might see the God that they need to have in their lives. 
Praise God for that wondrous plan. Praise God that we are invited into that with him. You know, when you think about election, when you think about belief in salvation, I pray at some point you end up here. You end up here remembering that for people to believe, they're gonna need to hear. For them to hear, someone needs to share with them that beautiful news of Jesus Christ and that we are to partner sending and talking, going and doing. This becomes the heartbeat of discipleship. This becomes the heartbeat of mission. You, know, you and I, we have a role to play and we get to be a part of a bridge in bridging the tension that we have been feeling in Romans here, right? God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. God will harden whom he will harden. Human beings, because of their sin, are responsible for their actions and people come to believe through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been invited in to take a part in bridging that tension, to understand that that we have a role to play just like everyone does, both in belief but in sharing, in, in, in telling others about the beauty that we've seen in God. And we believe truly that at the end of the day, God will get all the glory. God will have been seen to have his hand at work in all those things, that he alone gets the glory, yet we are part of that process in preaching and sending that people might hear and know. That is a reality. Those are the tensions we should always feel. We want more people to worship God, so we want them to see Jesus. And we trust him to ultimately do the work in their heart that only he can do, and that's why we go out and boldly proclaim it, knowing that if God wants to move their heart, that is a small thing for him. This morning as we take communion, and communion is always this like looking back moment and a looking forward moment. We're looking back at what God has done for us and we're looking forward at the same time to the new heavens and the new earth, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the imagery and this reality that we are going to be surrounded by this cloud of witnesses that we have never known. And this morning as you take communion, I want you to be thinking about that moment. Those people who yet know about Jesus Christ. Pray for them. Pray for the people in your life that have yet to know and trust Jesus Christ. Pray that God would send someone to them. Pray that God maybe even would send you to preach and share with them. And pray that they might come to salvation. This morning, as you take your elements and hold them, we'll take them together after the song. I want to encourage you to pray for that. Pray for, for God's working in their lives and in yours. Would you pray with me? Father God, what a... What an amazing plan that you have. Uh, What an amazing plan that Paul has unfolded for us from Romans chapter one through chapter eight. And then even in the areas that begin to look complicated, difficult to understand, we see glory bursting through again and again. The glory of your plan and your salvation, your hand at work sovereignly touching hearts and lives. And we see at the same time your call for us to believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ and for us to share the joy that we have. Lord God, would you begin to give us affections that would become the foundation of every word that comes out of our mouth. Lord God, would it become almost impossible to not follow this because of the joy that you are welling up within us in our knowledge of you. Lord God, would we become a a sending and a preaching and a going people For most of us, Lord, I know that will mean going across the street or going across the table to talk to someone else. But Lord God, would it even be to the ends of this world? Father, we thank you that you let us take part in this process as broken as we are. 
would you continue to conform us more to Jesus that people might see more clearly your glory and your beauty. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.